Go Law Enforcement. Go Law Enforcement. Go Law Enforcement. Go Law Enforcement. The podcast that makes your law enforcement dreams happen. Welcome to the Go Law Enforcement podcast, brought to you by GoLawEnforcement.com. I'm your host, Joe Lebowski. Passing the police exam is a vital step towards becoming a law enforcement officer. GoLawEnforcement.com can help you pass the police exam and get a score that will get you hired. Check out GoLawEnforcement.com. Denver Police Department Detective Mike Lombard is a hostage negotiator. In this episode of the Go Law Enforcement podcast, Detective Lombard discusses the role of a hostage negotiator, how drugs and alcohol often impact trying to de-escalate a situation, and he discusses two events. One with a subject who was wearing what appeared to be a suicide vest, and another involving a young man threatening to jump off of a ledge while he was active on social media. I am Detective Mike Lombard. Um, I've been in law enforcement for just about 15 years, mostly with the Denver Police Department in Denver, Colorado. My interest in getting into law enforcement really began long before adulthood. My grandfather was an elected sheriff in northern and central Michigan for my entire childhood, and really that kind of was my inspiration. And the more I kind of grew up in that culture, the more I came to realize my desire to serve locally and nationally. And and I think that's part of my reason for when I joined the military as well. It was all sort of that desire to be a servant in my community in whatever way that both piqued my interest and, you know, kind of fit my skills, as it were. The agencies I've been with thus far is just the Denver Police Department, but it really started before that when I worked in the public safety department of the college that I attended down in Arkansas. And that put the icing on the cake in terms of convincing me what my career path would be in the sense that it wasn't sworn law enforcement, but its mandates and its rules and its procedures down there at that Department of Public Safety really kind of set the stage for what I wanted my career to look like and what kinds of things that I would prioritize when I did finally get to my location where I landed, which was here in Denver. So in terms of the hiring process for the Denver Police Department, it uses a civil service model where the city uses kind of a leveled or tiered hiring process. And for me, being an out-of-state candidate, um, I had to fly in and do almost all the phases on one day. And so that was a grueling day. It started about five in the morning with the video exam that kind of determines your your nature and how you make decisions. So the video exam is basically a series of vignettes or scenarios that show you either a law violation or a service request or, or some sort of scenario that police officers can expect within their duties, just kind of on a day-to-day basis. And they give you a series of options for how to handle that situation. And then the actors who are engaging in that vignette will act out each scenario or each option, and you just choose the one that is most reasonable to you. Each time you make a choice, uh, unfortunately, you don't get the opportunity to explain yourself. 
And I think my score probably would have been a little higher if I was able to explain some of them. But uh, unfortunately, your selection, once you make it, there's no further opportunity to explain why you made that choice over, over another one of the options. And then it went on to a physical fitness exam, a mental health questionnaire. I believe at the time we took the MMPI then, that uh, kind of personality inventory standardized test. And then uh, we also had our polygraph. And like I said, being an out-of-state candidate, I had to do all of that in one day. So it was definitely very fast um, in terms of going through all of those things. And then it was I think a few weeks before I heard whether or not I made it to the final phase, which was background testing. And I think just a, an oral uh, board that I believe I handled over the phone. It's hard to remember back then, but it it was definitely that tiered system that just kind of had to go step at a time. I started and everybody starts at a patrol district and a patrol assignment with no real specialization. And I worked um, in kind of a low-income district for quite some time, just about five years. And um, after that, I went to the gang bureau and was a specialist in gang enforcement, gang law enforcement, and um, gang investigations. So criminal street gangs became kind of a passion of mine for a little while. I left that assignment and uh, became a field training officer in our downtown district of Denver and did that for about three years. And I got to say, that was one of my favorite assignments thus far, Um, just being able to train the new recruits when they come out of the police academy and kind of give them their on-the-job training was fantastic. And then after that, I became a detective in our major crimes division. And in that position, I investigated uh, homicide, suicide, accidental death, and overdoses, pretty much anything where somebody died as a result. And then from there, I did that for a couple of years and then just transferred sideways over to child abuse. And uh, that's where I kind of remain today. And during that time, that entire time as a detective, that's when I got into the hostage negotiator uh, role. So all of us detectives kind of have that opportunity to serve in that capacity if we choose to. And so that's kind of how I ended up there. So like many police departments around the country, hostage negotiations or crisis negotiations, it's a, an additional duty. So you're primarily a detective assigned to one specialty unit or another. And being a crisis negotiator is, is an extra duty that you volunteer for. And for us, that means being on call for a two-week period, wherein any time there's any incident that meets the criteria for a, a CNT call-out, um, the entire team gets activated, and we meet and kind of plan our response and negotiate with whoever it is that's in crisis or, or has an issue and um, do our best to resolve the situation peacefully so that there's... Uh, minimization of of any risk to loss of life or anything like that. What would typically happen in a perfect world is you would receive a call out and the entire team would meet at a command post and discuss the situation. And our team leader would choose the person on the team that's most appropriate to directly talk with that particular offender or person in crisis. 
And then the rest of the team would set up as, you know, an intel gatherer, a communication coach, a liaison. I mean, we would just start filling roles with the people that are most appropriate based on the situation. In reality, whoever gets there first kind of starts to set that up on his or her own and quickly assesses the situation for what it's going to need and what type of negotiation we're going to have to do, whether it's over cell phone, over loudspeaker, face-to-face, whether we have to use a throw phone to, to get you know, up to the person who's, who we're negotiating with, you know, cause then that really determines how we move forward after that is, you know, what kind of negotiation we're going to have to do. And then the, the rest of the team, as they arrive, just sort of fills in the gaps for what's needed until the entire situation sort of slows down enough that we can reorganize if we have to. Drug and alcohol make a big difference. Because when we're talking about negotiations, we're talking about somebody who is in crisis. And when we're talking about someone who's in crisis, we're talking about in crisis being, in whatever way, irrational. And because, let's face it, if you were rational, then being in that situation is not something you would rationally believe is a good idea. So when we do that, the objective is always to bring someone who's irrational into a state of reason. So whenever drugs and alcohol are uh, involved, it's difficult because it adds something you can't control. I can't control how drunk a person is from the other end of a phone or how many drugs they've consumed or, or what have you. And then unfortunately, drugs and alcohol are very influential in the sense that it happens a lot. It happens very, very often. You know, the elephant in the room on, on the situations when you're trying to match an individual to a, a negotiator is veterans. Really, that's the one thing that's really difficult in today's society where we've got so many veterans that are depressed or anxious or suffering from PTSD in one form or another. And you have to, as a negotiator, find a way to match the person who's going to touch on the person in crisis, who's going to touch on their values in the right way. And with veterans, it's very important because a lot of times when you talk about the veteran community, you're talking about people who have been indoctrinated with a certain viewpoint. They've been indoctrinated with a certain view of the world where certain things are right, certain things are wrong. And if you match the wrong person to that, you create a mismatch that could set them off at any time. And that's where, you know, matching somebody who's been through some of the same traumas or same types of traumas and come out of it successfully on the other side is a benefit because there's a certain level of understanding there that allows the veteran negotiator to touch on those values to say, hey, you and I are on the same side. We've seen the same blood and chewed the same mud. Like this is this is something we can get through together versus someone who's never been a veteran or never never been in the military, you know, is trying to do those things, trying to say those same values from an, an objective standpoint that just doesn't feel as connected as someone who's physically been there. The other thing that would also be the most difficult is anything that's face to face. The instant you're face-to-face, all of your supports are basically gone because you just can't 
have that same level of support from a team when it's just you and the other person standing face to face talking about how they need to come back from the ledge or to put a gun down or something like that. It's it's so much harder when you have to do all that thinking on the fly without that support of having a whole team and a bank of computers looking up information to help you. The first one that comes to mind is actually with a, an individual who is both a veteran and having an issue with his mental status. He was a veteran from back in the mid-80s from another country, and he had had serious mental health issues ever since he returned. And it took the entire team doing a multiplicity of different things to really get this under control. And in that particular instance, the individual had taken pictures of himself wearing a vest, and the pictures appeared like the vest he had constructed was like a suicide vest. And because of that, we had the additional challenge of having to clear an entire city block because we didn't know the destructive force of whatever he had created. In addition to that, we're trying to communicate with him over his cell phone, which he was calling 911 on. And anytime he would connect with 911, there would just be a bunch of screaming, um, some irrational statements, and then a hang up. We would never be on long enough to really establish communication that way. Also, because of his, you know, the photos of his vest that he had created, we couldn't just walk up to the door and negotiate with him through the door. So we were really limited on the ways that we could communicate. In that particular sense, the first two negotiators on scene took turns trying to communicate with him over a bullhorn or a PA system from one of the police cars. A couple of hours of every type of empathetic statement we could think of just to try to get him to engage with us verbally uh, in person and just wasn't working. So the lead negotiator and the coach just kept switching back and forth in their roles uh, over that period of time, just trying to get him to start talking. What ended up happening was as the two of us that were on the PA system, just over and over and over, keep trying to get him to start talking. Eventually, our command post arrived and we were able to back out and allow our tactical team to go and use the throw phone to get at least into a window. And our throw phones have cameras on them so we could see once it was thrown inside that the subject had already barricaded all the doors, all the windows. Um, they were They had to kind of punch through that barricade on that window in order to get the throw phone inside. And once it was inside, the subject came up and grabbed it and was kind of running around the house, really just screaming nonsensically. And it was just really difficult to try to get his attention and try to get him to do anything that we were, you know, hopeful would allow us to create some sort of communication. So eventually what happened was he came up, he grabbed the phone, he's running around for a little while. With that throw phone, you don't have to open it up and pick up the phone to use it, we had microphones on it and speakers on it. So we could just start talking and he could hear us and we could hear everything he was saying. So we just started that conversation without getting his compliance to actually pick up the phone. After hours of that went by, at the same time we were doing that, 
our tactical team was analyzing all the photographs of the what appeared to be a suicide vest. And they basically just had to decide, you know, how safe was it to make an entry to get him. And that was not easy, just based on how he had barricaded every door and window. So in the end, what we had to do was create basically a fake scenario where we were talking to him about what was going to happen. We were talking to him about anything that we could use to distract him, to think completely outside of defending himself. And the tactical team had to end up cutting straight through the wall and entering uh, the room where he was at sideways through this wall to the exterior. It worked exceedingly well. He was distracted. He was confused. He had no idea what was happening. And in the end, this is one of those that you kind of wish that you'd been able to, to talk him down or to talk him into some sort of reasonable thought process. But you have to just recognize when you're talking to someone who is not in touch with reality. And when we did, we just sort of came up with a plan that would allow for the safest possible entry of our tactical guys and, and just hope that we were able to keep them distracted enough to, you know, let them get in there safely and take them into custody. And they did and, and all ended well and nobody got hurt. And we're all thankful for that. And I would still consider that a win anytime that somebody is able, we were able to get them out without anybody getting hurt. So. It was just a few months ago, we had uh, a jumper. Um, so an individual suicidal wanted to jump from a uh, parking garage in the middle of the downtown area. And when we arrived, something else, I think there was a protest or something happening that day. And it was very, very difficult for anybody to get through the traffic to get to the area where this was happening. So when we arrived, it kind of arrived very piecemeal. And I was the first one there from the negotiators. And I just kind of had to grab a radio and run up to that level of the garage and, you know, see what we could do from there. This particular individual was standing on the ledge next to the edge of the parking garage, several floors up, definitely high enough to kill him if he jumped. And he was angry about being fired from a job. And he was also very young in his early twenties and he didn't have that kind of natural fear for his own life. And so he was just reckless in the way that he acted and the and how quickly he bounced back and forth to thinking the whole thing was funny and then getting very serious and actually jumping over the ledge and hanging on to the rail, you know, for a moment threatening to let go. And then that one was probably the most nerve-wracking of my life just because I was within about 15 feet of him face to face like I mentioned before is very very difficult and as we were doing that, trying to come up with things that he would latch onto and, and accept that his life was, you know, had value. And every time, you know, something would happen other, you know, in other places of the garage that were just noises or lights flickering or anything like that, he would get paranoid and start to climb over the rail again. And that one became exceedingly difficult just to try to keep him focused. You know, we talked for a couple of hours. And every time, you know, his attention would change or his focus would change, I would move a couple of steps closer until eventually we got to a point where we were close enough that he was distracted. It had gotten dark, so we cut the lights to that floor and 
he was kind of playing on a cell phone and, you know, we had been talking for quite a while just to kind of keep his focus away from jumping. And as we cut the lights off and were able to move a little bit closer, we took the opportunity for me to say a few words to him, got his attention to change just enough for him to turn away from the railing. And then uh, one of the officers, street officers that was supporting us, uh, hit him with a less lethal munition, and we were able to just jump up real quick and, and snatch him off the, the ledge. So again, it's one of those situations where sometimes the negotiation is not about convincing them to just walk away. Sometimes it's about getting into a position where you can make something happen safely. And in that particular one, it was very, very difficult just because it was face-to-face. We didn't have a lot of opportunity to plan outside of you know his presence. And then on top of that, everything that I said was immediately scrutinized by him. And, you know, oftentimes he would threaten to jump and he would start climbing over the rail. And if there's anything that makes you think how real the situation is, it's to say something to somebody and then they immediately climb over the rail, like they're going to jump. And it's just, it's very, very difficult. And definitely makes the entire situation very nerve wracking. He was using social media when I said he was playing on his phone social media began to play an issue because he was using it to cuss out and accuse past girlfriends, coworkers, things like that. And in that particular situation, there was nothing we could do to stop him from engaging in that uh, kind of self-satisfying behavior online because it's the middle of a downtown area. There's so much free Wi-Fi down there that if we shut one thing down, you know, he could just connect to something else and immediately be able to start posting again. So that part got really difficult, but the social media aspect made it hard because other people were able to influence him, you know, when I'm standing there trying to talk to him and that makes it very difficult to keep him focused. And it kind of allows people to either instigate and egg him on or to call him names or or vice versa, for him to to basically put himself at ease by saying his last piece to each one of those people. So um, it definitely is a variable you don't want to have to deal with if you don't have to in terms of social media. If you're planning on getting into law enforcement right now, there's a couple of things to consider. One, I can totally understand how this time in our culture and our country's history is a difficult one to deal with. But at the same time, it's still rewarding. And I don't think that reward is ever going to change. And if you were just getting into or considering getting into law enforcement, there's something that is very important that you realize and at least contemplate for yourself. And that is what's what's your goal? What are you what are you trying to do? For some people they get into law enforcement because they know they want to be a detective. And I applaud that. That's great. Other people want to push a radiator around their town for their entire, you know, 30 or 40 year career. And that's again, admirable because both of them are serving uh, their community in the way that appeals to them. So in terms of advice, I would say just understand and plan basically what is, what is it that draws you to law enforcement? What is it that you want to do? What is it you want to accomplish? And then with that plan, do everything you can to make it happen, but also be flexible enough that when an opportunity presents itself, that you're not afraid to say, you know what, 
I think I ought to give this a try because there is a great wide world out there in law enforcement full of completely diverse set of possibilities that you could be doing anything from administrative and clerical work to tactical operations with a SWAT team to crisis negotiations to really putting the puzzle pieces together in a criminal investigation. There's just no end to the possibilities. And so it it really is a great opportunity to just explore all of those and see what it is that really piques your interest. Passing the police exam is a vital step towards becoming a law enforcement officer. GoLawEnforcement.com can help you pass the police exam and get a score that will get you hired. Check out GoLawEnforcement.com. Thanks for listening.